If you're in the hallway or up stretching, the talk will begin in just a few moments. So uh, good evening. Good evening, Sangha. I am so glad to uh, be here with you. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) And I have to admit that it's a bit of a wild ride to give a Dharma talk after flying all day. I woke up at my snowy home in southwestern Colorado this morning in Durango after being delayed by a day. And it was just, uh, you know, full airplanes, canceled flights, and uh, I was meditating on the plane a bunch. The planes are a great place to meditate. Um, I was meditating on the plane and just kind of aware of the busyness and the sound of the engine and all that was going on. And then being here feels like, um, what do we call it, the upper middle path for sure. (laughs) Really a treat to be here with you. And I want to acknowledge You know, my mind, because I've been up since kind of early this morning and traveled all day, my mind is not as crisp as it might be when I would usually give a Dharma talk. So um, I am am just here with you and feeling just really quite appreciative of these conditions that allow us to drop into the practice in this way, because when I came in and got sat in the hall with you all this afternoon, I, I could feel the palpable energy of, of the work that you've been doing, of the Sangha, the community, the field, the field that we are creating together. So on the path it's often said that the core of the citta, the core of the heart-mind, is brilliant sanity. That the deeper truth of who and what we are isn't our wounding. That's part of what gets played out. But the deepest truth of who and what we are has to do with the nobility of heart has to do with a quality of illumination, brilliance, and sanity. This is part of why it is so valuable to be doing this practice in our world at this time. Because things can feel so out of control. And this practice isn't about control, but it is a way to develop a reservoir of something inside of us that's not distraught. A reservoir of something inside of us that has the flavor of peace, has the flavor of the ease that we yearn for. And as we attend to so many um, structural systemic pieces about what needs to be otherwise, what, what, what we want to see in the world today in the direction of non-harming, we can implement all sorts of systems, all sorts of 
policies and people influence systems, systems influence people. And the heart of it is human consciousness. Human consciousness is very, very powerful. So I really appreciate the wholesomeness of how you're spending your time here, doing the real work of, of opening to what real compassion is for you. Opening to a kind of timeless and ancient wisdom that calls us, that beckons us in some way. And we come on retreat and most folks I talk to have certain ideas about what it's going to look like, you know, what's going to unfold. Did you have your ideas? Calm, peace, relaxation. Is that what's happening? Maybe. I remember when I started sitting retreats, my family thought I was going to spas all the time. Why are you going to the spa again, Erin? It's so self-indulgent. I said, I thought, this is not the most self-indulgent thing I could do. You know, it's not the spa. But, but it's uh, supportive. We have most of what we need for these days together right here. And usually what happens is we come with ideas about how retreat's going to be, and then the mind is careening all over the place. <laughs> You know, you might feel the, the aches and pains in your back or your hips. And whatever's happening for you, you know, tonight at the end of our first full day together, this is the retreat. It's not what happens tomorrow is the retreat. It's not the images and pictures of how you wanted it to be. It's like, oh, what's happening right now is your retreat. There aren't mistakes in this way on retreats. And I really appreciate the, somebody spoke to this. I think it was you, Brooke. Somebody spoke to this this afternoon, but, um, you know, sitting retreats has always been something quite precious. Well, ever since I started the practice more than 25 years ago now, but, but just, how it is to be in person together practicing again. You know, a lot of you may have been on apps and practicing online. There's something energetic and sacred that happens when we can be in person practicing together. And talking about the detox, the Dharma detox, it's like I have seen... um, this detox process be amplified more than ever after the last few years of um, living with the impact of COVID. You know, living within a pandemic that amplifies already existing inequities in ways that are quite personal. And so there can be the sense of coming on retreat, like even more there can be a backlog of grief even more there can be a backlog of kind of like, how do I orient after this disorientation? You know, in in a way, the presence of COVID has been like um, an initiation, personally, collectively, culturally. And so the detox is real. That's really real. 
One of my friends uses this great analogy of coming on a retreat like this being as if, let's say you're, let's say you're going down a highway in a station wagon and all the stuff's in the back, all of the, the baggage and the load that we carry is in the back and going along and all of a sudden putting the brakes on hard, what happens? It all rushes to the front, right? It all rushes to the front. And so, so sometimes these first days of retreat can just feel like that, like, oh, these layers, these layers, these impressions, these resonances that are here for us. And it's good to know why you're here, really. You know, not just the elevator speech, but what you feel in your heart. Why you're here, really. And I do feel that it has to do with the sacred on some level. You know, mindfulness, I'll say more about that. It's become a very popularized word. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that mindfulness is becoming more commonplace. I'm glad about that. And what we're doing here is like coming into a ceremony together. It's coming into a space that we are creating that is deliberate, where we're doing something really specific in a way that matters. This is from um, an interpretation by Maddie Weingast of the Terigata. The Terigata um, means like awakened utterances, these utterances of these, of these early um, awakened Buddhist women way back in the day. And I just really appreciate his interpretations. This is called Upasama, calm. How how do you cross the flood? You cross calmly, one step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. You feel that? Slowly, sensing, looking for stones. And I thought it was apropos because of all the flooding. But you know, we, use, we use the metaphor of flood as being like the, the torrent of, um, of our deepest confusion. And the only way to free ourselves from our deepest confusion is to cross the flood. And we're crossing the flood. And one step at a time is just a metaphor for really one moment at a time. This path is a path that, that um, asks a lot of us. It's not easy to sit with our, our, ourselves. It asks a lot of patience. So feeling into remembering what, uh, what brought you here. I'll tell you about my first retreat. I'd been meditating for several years and I decided I wanted to sit a retreat because there was just a feeling like I really couldn't sit still with myself. I was in college full time. I was working like 30 hours a week. I was just wired to be jumpy. 
Maybe you know that feeling of being wired to be jumpy. And um, I went and I sat this retreat and it was the hardest thing. It was just the hardest thing ever. It was so hard that I got done and I swore I would never do that again. That was it. I remember saying to my teacher at the time, um, Guy Armstrong saying, I'm here to get rid of suffering and all I'm doing is suffering. Why would I do this to myself? <laughs> you know, here I am all these years later. Because a few days after that retreat, I was taking a bath. And it's like this little thought, this wispy thought crept its way into my mind. Huh, maybe, um, maybe I'll do that again sometime. Those kinds of thoughts that surprise a person. And the truth was that for me, the practice was really hard. I didn't love the practice for some years, but I loved the teachings. There is a way that what I was hearing made sense to me in, in, in my marrow of my being. It's like, how did they become how they are? You know, practice. What is that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, beautiful people don't just happen? We're becoming even more beautiful people. So Suzuki Roshi puts it like this when he says, what is your heart's innermost request? And there's something so beautiful to me about that language. What is your heart's innermost request? And what happens if we let that orient us in our lives? Because we, I think I can say, I don't want to universalize, but I think I can say we want something more than powering through and collapsing. You know, we want something more than just going through the day and feeling like at the end of the day, like, you know, just is, is there a sense of satisfaction, meaning, fulfillment? And often so many of the things the culture tells us to want to make us happy, they just don't, the promises don't deliver. And so your commitment to showing up and doing the schedule and sitting, even when you're thinking, please ring the bell, please ring the bell. You know, it's moment by moment by moment, we are cultivating um, the capacity for awareness to know itself. We're understanding something more intimately about the activity of awareness. And mindfulness, it's not just mindfulness, right? What, what you've been practicing here is mindfulness, heartfulness bringing an attitude of care, of uh, interest, of, of uh, wholeheartedness, mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness. I didn't get to hear Bruni's walking instructions, but I heard they were beautiful. Bodyfulness. Mind, heart, body. And it's beautiful. Uh, the, the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. 
Did you say this yesterday, Sati, to remember? It's so, it's so beautiful because oftentimes we think about memory as being remembering something cognitively that happened at another point in time. Maybe you remember your 15th birthday. Maybe you remember what the weather was like yesterday. That's all great. And this is really, uh, when we bring sati front and center, we are bringing forth just the capacity to remember to be present. It's almost like a flickering, an awakening, a remembering. Such a beautiful root to the word sati. Mary Oliver, the pilot came out this morning and explained about, I'm sure some of you maybe flew here yesterday, but explained about how it was that we would be flying beneath an atmospheric river. I was just intrigued. I was like intrigued that that could happen at all. And I thought, oh, this is a little bit like Dharma practice. You know, there's, there's, um, I could say a lot on that, but, but just these, these places where we can rest somewhere as, you know, the joys and sorrows of life find their way with us. Yeah, the great Mary Oliver, today I'm flying low and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must. The bees in the garden rumbling a little. The fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten and so forth. But I'm taking the day off. Quiet as a feather. I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness. One of the doors into the temple. So some of what's really changed for me since that first retreat I sat was that now I would say so many of my happiest moments have happened on retreat. Not the happiness of, you know, watching my godson be born. Not the happiness of having the perfect uh, piece of triple creme brie. But but the, the happiness that comes from... Um, non-craving, the happiness that comes from a sense of sufficiency, the happiness that comes, that, that, that is just what remains when that dissatisfaction isn't running the show. And when dissatisfaction settles down, there is a peace. There is a kind of the happiness of, of, of beingness. And part of what allows this kind of happiness to emerge is um, learning to get simple. Because we're not used to being simple, right? We're used to thinking about things. Practice is actually very simple, not easy, but quite simple. 
And it's really a movement from a thought-based reality where you know how it might feel to be just inside of the scaffolding of your thoughts. Your thoughts about you, your thoughts about other people, your thoughts about the world. You know, the thoughts just come um, like, a, have you ever watched a border collie chase a ball? Boom, 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 boom. The thoughts can feel like that, you know? And so with the practice of sati, it's really important to give a lot of space for these creatures to do what they do. Not to say sit, stay, be type, but, but to actually have some room to uh, roam. We practice widening the heart, widening the awareness, bringing forth a quality of spaciousness that can meet what's here. So retreat is ceremony. One word I hope you take with you from this talk is linger. Linger. I don't mean to like walk really slowly through the meal line. That's not what I'm saying. But just hang out with the the moon's full tomorrow. Linger. That nice spicy ginger tea they have, linger. The sound of the bell, linger. Your heartache or your sweet joy, linger. Sati is not afraid to linger. Sati is not in a rush. Sati is not narrow. Sati is not distressed. But sati is, it does carry a quality of of presence. Of nobility. Of something that we can harmonize with, we can resonate with, that we don't actually have to think that much about. We just remember So I just taught a a super sweet New Year's retreat uh, with my good friend, Brian Lesage. He came to Durango and we did it from the center in Durango. And so it's fresh in my mind, you know, not so much making goals or that sort of thing, but, but feeling into the energy of the solstice, this feeling into how it is to be really turning inward and, and kind of fortifying the way that the bulbs in the ground are doing right now the way that the bears who hibernate in the valley where I live are doing right now. And so just appreciating that each of you have been born. That's not news. You've been born. And there's so many people on the planet and, and a human birth is precious, precious and rare. And as we come on retreat, we're, we're, we're entering this liminal, ceremonial uh, space that can kind of be between the worlds. You've departed from the ordinary world of your everyday life into this retreat life, where you don't get to decide what you're having for dinner, where there might be different noises than what you're used to in the dorms, where you're waiting for somebody else to ring the bell. 
where you have pretty much all your basic needs taken care of in a way that can allow the jumpiness to settle. But it's, it's conditions, right, that have allowed each of us, each of us to be here. And there can often be a sense when we reflect upon the, the gift of our own lives that, that our lives aren't of our own making entirely. There can be a sense of just being like thrown into whatever identities you embody. You know, all that you occupy on this path of your life. It's like the making of it is often not of our own choosing, but um, it's ours to navigate. It's really ours to navigate this life (laughs) exactly where each of you find yourselves. And so what a merciful, beautiful way of learning to navigate this life from a deeper, deeper place than sati, remembering, remembering what really matters. Have you ever had the thought, can't I just wake up without all the silent meditation? Just give me the chapter to read. I'll ace it, please. (laughs) And so it's like we actually practice moment by moment by moment because we're always practicing something. In this talk, you're practicing something. And so am I. So we, we uh, step into lives that are not of our own making, but are our own to navigate. And for us, death, the, the actuality of death is certain, unless you're the one exception. <laughs> you know, death, uh, our death is certain, but the timing is uncertain. And it's so easy to hover just above that actuality, to act as if, you know, we're never going to die. It's so easy for those veils to get really clunky. And I remember um, when my mother was, uh, it was after she went into hospice that she started getting interested in meditation. You know, she died much younger than I would have wished for her. Um, in her mid-60s, and (laughs) once she had this really, really rough diagnosis and she knew she wasn't going to live very long, she started wanting to meditate. And she said, Erin, I think you know something about this. That's been the spa, you know, all these decades. But it was interesting that it was was when... when, um, the the total deep knowing that her life would be over in a few months, that she was spurred to look more deeply. And it was actually an incredible transformation those last months of her life. So beautiful. Yeah, I was teaching with you, Howie, when that was going on upstairs. I remember that. <laughs> it was so touching. Um, but, but just that, you know, if you, if you know that the timing of your death is uncertain, what do you want to do with your time? You know, and for me, I've never been sorry 
for all of the um, time I spent practicing in this kind of a way. So, linger. You were born and you're going to die. Linger. There's something more beautiful than what all of the thoughts tell you. And you begin to sense it as you walk, as you pause, as you look, as you feel the in-breath. Behold. You know, especially because Spirit Rock, I mean, this is coastal Miwok land is just very, it's a very special place. And you're like, to take your time. And there's one, you know, one way where you can say, I'm aware of my in-breath. I'm seeing the redwood. But if you let yourself behold it just a bit, there's an energy of reverence. There's an energy of, oh, this moment matters. And it doesn't even mean you have to like, like it. You could behold um, the dirty dishes doing your yogi job. It's about how are we in relationship to what is here, to behold. And in time, you know, things begin softening. Things begin loosening. We begin to discover a more fluid um, way of being. That goes to the, really the, the heart of our fundamental confusion, which has to do with taking ourselves to be separate. And of course, that's the confusion. It's been like that for a long time. And so reinforced often by the normative cultures. James Baldwin offers up a kind of a felt sense about what I'm speaking to. He's talking about identity. Identity would seem to be the garment with which one covers the nakedness of the self. In which case, it's best that the garment be loose, a little like the robes of the desert, through which robes one's nakedness can always be felt and sometimes discerned. This trust in one's nakedness is all that gives one the power to change one's robes. If I was to put a Buddhist twist on that or a Dharmic twist, he's, he's talking about the nobility of heart. He's talking about the brilliant sanity of the chitta of the heart mind. It's pointing. You know, and, and so are you. That's why we, we use all these different tools, right? We use mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of what's pleasant and unpleasant. We, we um, cultivate the heart practices. We look at, oh, like, what gives rise to suffering? What gives rise to non-suffering? We do all these practices, but it's, it's like the breath meditation isn't about the breathing for our purposes here. It's about sati. It's like, oh, anything that you are aware of can be a um, way for um, awareness to wake up to itself. Can be a way to uh, behold. 
who and what you are. In any time, you know, we learn something new, it takes time. I play the piano. I love playing the piano. I didn't just sit down and start playing the piano. I practiced and practiced and practiced, you know, and notes become chords, which can become scales, which can become arpeggios, which can become songs. If you know how to ride a bike, you probably didn't always know how to ride a bike. You know, you wipe out. Body has to kind of find its way. But once it's in you, it's in you. So a lot of a gentleness around, you know, we don't practice. We, we practice to, to learn something, to master something more fully. Even the Dalai Lama meditates every day. You know, he's not beyond meditation. And it's, uh, it's important to cultivate the art of how it is to come on a retreat and not do it perfectly. Have you, have you felt any of the self-consciousness that can come up in the meal line? Like, it's just so different to have somebody standing right behind you, maybe staring at exactly how much you're taking of what. And it's just like, there can be this sense of, I'm taking too much. Am I throwing away my food? That's just one, one example, but to, to enter a retreat like this and, and you don't have to do it perfectly. There is no perfectly. If somebody knows, I guess the perfectly would be wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly to be here wholeheartedly. Cause you can like put all this stuff together, make all this effort, work, work, work to make yourself come be here. And then you, you're thinking about the escape plan. Do you have it? It's actually something that I've been seeing since the residential centers reopened again is, is like a, it's really been moving on the retreats I've taught, just seeing like a whole level of the gratitude to be in person together. And it, it changes the whole sense of kind of, kind of the, the, the culture of the retreat when there's that gratitude been really beautiful to watch how practice unfolds with the presence of that gratitude in that way. And so if you're learning to enter a retreat and do it imperfectly, your neighbor gets to do the same thing. It's a load off. One time I was on a retreat, I was on a three month course, um, at our sister center, IMS and Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. And there was this, uh, this person on the retreat who was next to me in the hall. And I think when he was eating, maybe he just wasn't paying that much attention, but he would oh, yeah, all be different foods on his t-shirt. Like if it was squash soup, there'd be some squash soup on his t-shirt. There was lasagna, be some lasagna on his t-shirt. And I was just like amused by this whole thing amused with a little bit of aversion here and there. And uh, I had this whole story going on about this guy and, you know, eating. And then I watched him like wipe his nose and grab the salad tongs. I mean, oh, you know, wash your hands. And um, so it's this whole mental thing. It was like a, it, it was a 
kind of mental proliferation where my mind would go from time to time. And, and it was interesting because at the end of the retreat, I was put in a small group with him to break the silence together. And he started talking and he's the most um, beautiful heart, like this absolute sweet pea of goodness. And it was just a mirror back to like, oh, in this retreat space, there aren't that many, many distractions, but your mind will create them. Your mind will create them. And I'm going, that's, that's the habit pattern. That's the energy. And none of that is anything that we're trying to get rid of. We just want to see clearly so it doesn't take up all the space. We just want to know the experience of, of awareness not conjoined with all of that. So we allow, we make space, we open, we begin again. This is the airplane brain, because I got to see where we are with, okay. Another few, another few things I want to share with you. This is a poem by Lisa Chatsky. What matters? Because that's what I'm talking about here is what matters. You know, not meditation for meditation's sake to get good at it. I'm talking about what matters. I'm talking about at the end of your life, what's, what, what matters? To be here matters. <laughs> you know? To dwell in the sacred matters. To know a holding deeper and wider than um, with the flavor of mystery. That matters. Here's her poem. What matters is that you do not pretend, you do not hear the water's ancient melody over stones in the river. And you do not turn away from the questions ringing inside you like bells in the monk's hands. What matters is that you do not ignore the alpine meadows and their wildflowers singing the cobalt sky. And you say yes to the laughter and yes to the tears. And you open yourself up to the mountain so the sun can find you and the wind caress your face and the grass kiss your feet. What matters is that you say yes to the dance and yes to the songs. Yes to the night and all her stars. Yes to the colors painted by light. Yes to the deserts and their longings for soul. What matters is that you say yes to the voice inside of the voice of the one you forgot. The one who dreamed and played and loved and you bring forth what is in you to bring forth as you break through your own walls and erase your own ceilings and stumble and fall and get up again as you find your way home. What matters as you find your way home? And you don't even like have to always be present. <laughs> the question about being conscious. You know, just what matters is the willingness to be present. Sitting. I don't like what I'm feeling. Rah, rah, rah. 
Are you willing to be present with that? Are you willing to breathe with all of the waves? Are you willing to trust enough just to, to, to breathe with what's here? And, and you know, when you're, you can just put your hand on your heart and just like the, the palms, the palms are a little like awareness, just, oh, it's that light of a touch. You can just like, oh, can I feel my palm resting right here, right now? That simple. Okay, there's some sati. There's presence. There's some mindfulness there. That simple. Just the hands touching. Yeah, I think I take heart in humanity <laughs> when I get to be in these spaces. It gives me a, it buoys my heart. There's a reason that these teachings have been around for such a long time, 2,600 years. just seeing if there's anything else I want to say before I share something for closing. It's always a bit of a trip to give the talk at the end of the first day because I haven't met with all of you yet. So like there's so much going on behind those masks. (laughs) I know there is. We all know there is. Yeah, so much going on. And I guess that's a little like life, right? Like you walk by somebody in the grocery store, like there are just superheroes among us, <laughs> so much. So just like really creating the space for it to bubble up, like that not being the obstacle to get beyond, but that being part of the purpose, part of the nature. Because this, this path, this practice is, is about intimacy. It's about really touching what's here. And I hope you let uh, just this incredible land be a real part of how you're practicing, how you're spending your time here. I think this is my airport brain right now. <laughs> hmm. And I guess if you uh, are doubting yourself, you're doubting your capacity to do the practice in some way. If you're thinking that other people can do it, but not you, you know, I really do invite you to borrow my confidence in this path. I have deep confidence in this path. I have deep confidence in this practice. So you can draft off me at any point in this retreat. You can draft off the confidence that lives in this heart for what we're doing here. That's offered freely, very freely. And some of you are uh, newer to retreat practice, and some of you aren't. Some of you have been practicing a really long time. And you know the kind of the um, satisfaction and the, I'm using this word beckon again, but, but like the Dharma begins to beckon us. We start to see a little bit more, and it just has a momentum that's its own force field. It's really beautiful, actually. 
You know, and so those of you who aren't new to retreat and who've been practicing for a while, um, yeah, just tr- trusting the practice, trusting the practice, and know that you know we start with mindfulness of breathing and body, for example. You know, walking mindfully, and it leads to honestly deep and profound understandings about the nature of reality, because reality wants to know itself. You know, feels good to get freed up. This is from a book by Sally Tisdale called Women of the Way. And this is basically an experience, and it is basically a um, sharing of an experience of enlightenment, an experience of, of awakening. It's like kind of pointing toward um, where the path goes. And you can just, there's a lot of imagery in this, so you can kind of let yourself see the imagery a bit. Standing on the small porch of Hakujan, she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry crow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that a rising arose abided and fell away and that abiding arose abided and fell away and that falling away arose abided and fell away she saw that knowing this arose abided and fell away then she knew there was nothing more than this no ground Nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held. Nothing to lean on at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Just take a moment of quiet together to let the words settle. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So carry on, friends. We are um, just really appreciate your effort, appreciate your practices, and uh, there's time for walking uh, before a guided loving kindness meditation at nine. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.